I don't know about you, but this has been a very difficult week for, at least for me, as one of the leaders in our community, I felt the pressure from every different angle. We have five different generations in our church, and our generations feel very differently about the events that have happened, uh, both in Minneapolis and on the streets. And some of you have written, and I'm thankful for that. Some of you have given me talking points of what I should say, and I'm not thankful for that. But I am grateful that you are engaged with what is happening. I wanted to take just a few moments before the message, and if I can, uh, speak uh, for myself, uh, though I can't always speak for everyone in the congregation. I began the week by reading or rereading the prophets. I became conversant in the prophets last summer when I waded through all of them, at least the major prophets. And so I knew some of the phrases and I felt if I returned there, I would find language for what I was feeling in my soul. And I did. The prophets write in very blunt in sometimes vitriolic language. A terrible thing has happened in the land, said Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy lies and the priests rule by their own authority and my people love it that way. But what will you do in the end? Isaiah said we cry for justice and we cannot reach it. We seek deliverance and it is far from us. And so I found in the prophets the language I was looking for, uh, for injustice and for the oppression of people all across our land, not just in the present week, but for centuries. But I found something happening in my own spirit while I was doing it. I was becoming angry. I was becoming vitriolic myself. I remember James said, even if anger is justified, it never works the righteousness of God. And so I couldn't really be part of the solution until I'd gotten past this stage of anger. So I hit the second part of my week where I grieved. I started hearing stories of how people in our community, just days or weeks ago, people of different ethnicities, specifically black people who are part of our church, have been criticized uh, and really excoriated from the community by people that are white. And it occurred to me that this is not just systemic, this is real. And so if you're still wondering if all of these charges are accurate, if they have real names, trust me, they do. And if you're sorry about it, I'll introduce you to some of them. The stories are terrible and they broke my heart. But I grieved also for the church because the problem, said the prophets, the problem with the world is not the world, it's the church. And the problem with the church is its values. And the sentence I wrote to myself was, there can be no justice in the streets until there is holiness in the church. And there will be no holiness in the church 
until individuals who belong to that church begin to practice different ways. This is not something we all do as a program. This is something we do as individuals. So by the end of the week, I found myself in still another place, needing a way forward. And that's what I want to give you before I get to the message. First, if you want to help us, College Church, go forward in this day, then help us engage more with our community. We are already very present in the public schools. We had dozens of people down at the courthouse. We have three times as many people involved in immigrant connection than we've had even a year or two ago. So we're already pretty active. Our people are active in the courts and in the jails and in the hospitals. We're very active. But if you know of ways, if when you're praying, God puts something on your heart, a tangible way of expressing our love for the community, then come to us. And don't just drop it. Don't just say, here's what y'all should do. Volunteer to take the lead. Come forward with a proposal and say, I need six people. I need 12 people. And this is specifically what we're going to do. And one of the things we can do is leverage our congregation to help with those causes. The second thing is reach out to friends of yours that are of ethnic minorities, providing you have them, and ask them specifically how they are feeling at a time like this. Listen to them. Ask them how you can love them, even though you cannot solve this problem. It's curious to me that so many of us would write on social media, but we would not actually write an individual. Third, if you know of a specific instance in our community where someone, maybe you, is being held back because of color or because of prejudice, talk to us. We will listen to you. And as much as lies within our power, we will stand as an advocate with you. We will try as much as we can to get you into a place that is just and that is good. There are systems in our community that we cannot move. They're old, they're entrenched, and God willing, someday they will change. But there is power in institutions. And so if you know of specific situations, I wish you'd come and talk to us. Obviously, I can't handle every situation, and I have, personally, very little power of my own. 
And obviously, college church is not the solution for every person, but your church is. And so if something is happening in your life where you're being held back, it does no good for us to speak about racism in general. We have to talk about specific situations, and if we can, we will speak into that with you. And finally, you thought this was the message, didn't you? Love one another from the heart. Love is patient and it's kind and it isn't rude and it's not haughty and it isn't critical. It never insists on having its own way. No, love always hopes, always protects and it perseveres to the end. And love never fails. Sometimes all of our anger about systems in general blind us to our own problems in particular. In being critical of society, we become judgmental ourselves. Not knowing, I suppose, that a judgmental and critical spirit, the assurance that my convictions are right and someone else's are wrong, is the embryo from which racism is born. Racism, to be sure, is far worse, but it starts somewhere, and it starts in the human heart. So whatever you feel about what's happening on the streets right now, there is no substitute for treating the person in front of you at Myers, or the person cutting you off on the bypass, or the person who writes things on social media that you don't agree with. There is no substitute for treating that person with love, dignity, and respect. Are you still there? Can I pray with you? Jesus. My heart is broken. And the world is heavy. And the air is suffocating with opinions and convictions. Proverbs says, where the words are many, transgression is nearby. Oh God, help us as part of the solution to steward our words. Help us to love people that are hard to love. And more than that, change us. Show us the places in our own soul that need healing.
and bring us to the day of our own redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I consulted uh, with an old man from Kentucky named Dennis Kinlaw. I told you about him. Asbury University asked if I'd come down and speak on campus. I said I'd considered it if they could get me in a room with Kinlaw for one hour. They said he's not seeing many people, so I said, <laughs> I'm not going many places, so see if you can make that happen. Sure enough, they called back within a couple of weeks and they said, believe it or not, he is willing to see you. For an hour or so, I drove down and I spent an hour talking with the old guy. And while I did, <laughs> he moved seamlessly. In his late 80s, he moved from Balthazar to Bart to Niebuhr to Eichrott to Kierkegaard to Kant. He just... One time he turned and said to me, uh, 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 Steve, when's the last time, that's how we talked, when's the last time you read Plato's Republic? <laughs> I said, uh, that's been a while. He said, no, no, I mean read it in the Greek. I said, well, that's, uh, that's been even longer like never. He, he smiled and he lifted a phrase out of Plato's Republic in the Greek by memory. The dude's in his late 80s. And then he lifts a phrase out of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And he says, can you see how the two are talking to one another? <laughs> I went. <laughs> he spent the next few minutes. That's the kind of conversations those were. One day we were talking about exile. I'd done some work in exile and so I was waxing eloquent in what I'd learned and halfway through my little uh, diatribe, he interrupted me and he said, Steve, do you know why God sent his people into exile? Well, I thought I did, but I knew his answer would be better and so I said, I bet I don't. He said, to cure them of their idolatry. Well, the phrase intrigued me because I thought I understood exile as a punishment. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, tell my people that the time of their service is over. Their sins have been paid for. That's punishment. You've abandoned God. He's sending you to prison in 70 years. He'll let you out. But he was suggesting it wasn't punishment. It was a cure. So I said, what do you mean by that? He said, in exile, your idols die. It becomes clear that your gods can no longer save you. So you start looking for other gods. And that's when you rediscover Yahweh. All the way home I was thinking about that. It's one of those moments where your entire paradigm shifts. If, if, if idolatry is a disease or a sickness, 
then idols are not things we make in our minds or with our hands. They're like viruses we catch. And so they don't attach themselves to things that are dead. They attach themselves to things that are living. We have idols not because we don't believe in God, but because we do believe in God. And like viruses, idols have no life of their own. They simply live off of the life that we have with God. And they subtly attach themselves to us and then we start to reproduce them until we have found other ways to get control or significance or legitimacy, or cohesiveness, or safety, or meaning. And if idols are more like viruses, we catch them because we're healthy. We are never free from the risk. In fact, if you think you can't get them, you're at even greater risk. And because they happen to godly people, we can almost always defend them with a verse or a theological idea. Therefore, I'm justified. And I started thinking as I come home what the idols of the American church might be like growth for the last 50 years. That's where we found our megastars in the church. They were all in large churches. But now in the pandemic, every church is the same size. It's about the size of a family meeting in a living room. And the most vulnerable churches are not the small ones, not anymore. It's the big ones with big mortgages and operating budgets. Suddenly, it's the smaller ones that might actually survive. I thought of the idol of relevance. Can we control the president? Can we get our people elected? Can we make a social statement so that society will not ignore us? But in the pandemic, the governors have declared us non-essential. They're even telling us how many can meet. It seems as though we don't have as much control as we thought, I thought of idols of independence or autonomy, idols of prosperity and success, idols of comfort. And I wondered how many of them were dying. Well, I set the matter aside until about two and a half months ago. I picked up First Peter. I was looking for a word from God in this pandemic because everything in my life was changing like it is in yours. And it felt to me like the church today is scattered. They can no longer meet. And it felt to me like the church today is living under a government that it does not trust. And it felt to me like the church today was always being maligned and accused by somebody else. Whenever something went wrong, why, it's the church. It's those Christians who did it. And it started to seem a lot like 1 Peter 
So I picked it up and started reading it again. And this is what I read. Peter, an apostle, to those who are chosen by God, living in exile. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away, kept in heaven for you who are being protected until the day of salvation. Even though you suffer trials of many different kinds, these things have happened to you so that your faith, being more genuine than gold, even when refined by the fire, will result in praise, honor, and glory on the day Jesus Christ is revealed. And the thought occurred to me that every one of us respond in every situation according to how that situation occurs to us. And even though I was at a time where I felt everything in my life professionally and personally was moving and I felt unsure <laughs> uh, and picked on and uh, in doubt, heavy, These things were happening for the perfecting of my faith. And that's when I thought about the old guy from Kentucky. When God sends us like we are right now, scattered and we can no longer meet, when God subjects us to leaders that we cannot Trust. And when God puts us in situations where we are constantly maligned, this is not punishment, this is a cure. If it's punishment, he's angry. But if it's cure, it's love. If it's punishment, he's abandoned us. He sent us to prison. But if it's a cure, he's with us. <laughs> he's actually using this to do the surgery. If my identity is established not by the circumstance, but by my calling, I have a new birth. Not just what evangelicals call born again. God has birthed me into a world that is very different from the one I grew up in. Bigger, more colorful, more adventurous, more clear. And if God has given me a living hope, not just optimism, 
but the assurance that whatever happens to me has purpose. Because I have a destiny that was assigned to me by Almighty God. And if God has given me an inheritance kept in heaven, and heaven is not up and away, but right next to my head, and if I can reach into it whenever I need it and pull something out for that day, and boy, have I done that again and again and again. And if I am being kept for the day of salvation, I'm not being punished at all. This crisis that we're in right now is not God abandoning us. It's God perfecting us and making us better. So the question changes from when will this finally be over? And when can we finally get together? It's no longer the question. Now the question is, what do we want to be true of us once we do get together? Question shifts from survival to vision. So about two months ago, we started having those conversations. I then met with some of our staff, shared those ideas, and then met with the board and shared some semi-different ideas. And because this is college church and everyone has ideas, um, I want to give you uh, the three or four things that I hope are true of us when we finally regather. These are things that have already happened during this pandemic because we needed them to happen. And we discovered while they were happening, hey, these are good. And I hope these continue long after everyone has come back into this room. The first is that I am praying we will see more lay people involved in the pastoral care of their peers. No longer is ministry done just by the professionals to the laity. It's done by the laity to each other. And the pastoral care that I am praying for is more intentional than a simple text in the morning that says, praying for you, thumbs up. I'm expecting people to get into the gritty details of one another's lives so that they can speak words of comfort or speak words of advocacy or words of vision and direction so they can say things to one another that you can't say to somebody else because they're that specific. I think it'd be fantastic if there was an army of people in our congregation now more sensitive to the needs of others. I hope, I'm praying, that you will be as sensitive and as caring and compassionate for other people in our congregation as you have been for me in the last four to five weeks. Because their load is just as heavy or heavier. Second, 
I'm praying that the focus for spiritual formation will shift from professionals to parents, from the church to the home. One of the things we've discovered is that if we make resources available, parents are stepping up and they're becoming the leaders in their homes spiritually. I'll take that trade any day. If the resources are there and parents are ready, we could see a fundamental shift in the primary spiritual caregiver in homes and in businesses. So our job then as pastors becomes simply to provide the guidance, the vision, and the resources, training if necessary. But the work itself shifts across the congregation. Third, I hope this crisis that we're in right now, this perfecting, is shifting the focus of college church away from the gathering. I, I know some of you are thinking, we'll still gather because we're good at that. But toward the sending, the purpose of gathering in worship is to empower for the send, which then in turn causes people to gather. And we've been so focused uh, in the last few years on just half of our mission uh, that maybe God's going to use this to make us even more engaged with our community. And four, I pray that this season that we're in will Give our laity, you, a holy boldness to take the claims of the gospel out into the community where those claims belong. The hardest place to make Christians is in a church because everyone in it thinks they are. The best place to make them is in the world where there's resistance and one can see the difference. And so what an opportunity for us to take the gospel out into the community. I met with about 180 pastors from Michigan just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this and pastor after pastor said the same thing. They said in the last few weeks, I've had more opportunities to share the gospel than I have in years. And why is that? Well, it's because the gods are dying. For years, we've looked to science and technology, but it has no answer. We've looked to the government, but they don't know what to do. We've looked to the markets and they're crashing. And so the world is looking for a different narrative. And how powerful would it be if there were people from our church that knew the gospel and they took it out into society? What I prayed for me then, I pray for you that God will help us, teach us to steward our voices. That doesn't mean we talk more. It might mean we talk less and think more. 
before we talk so that our words are targeted and they have weight. Now, as you process these thoughts today in your own homes, one of the great stories I'm hearing, talked to a couple yesterday at an open house who said, man, when the message is over, uh, we go right into a discussion and that discussion is causing some things in our family. We just haven't had this opportunity before. I want to put in front of you three questions that might, I hope, uh, initiate those conversations. Surely you'll have other ones that will be better, more specific, but if these get you started, here they are. When you think about the church in exile, what other idols might be dying and why? What's happened, in other words, that are identifying the idols of our society? As you think about living as Christ in this crisis, what part is the hardest? Where do you often lose your balance? Really good for you now just to turn, uh, look across the room at someone and say, yeah, here's where I always get stuck. And third, how might God be using these trials to perfect our faith, to perfect your faith. What did you think was punishment is a cure? And what disease is going away because of this purging and cleansing and stripping away in the last few months? Maybe you'll pray about that. Maybe you'll just pray out loud and just say, God, this is what I sense you are doing in my life. And you have no other way to give it to me except through this. I don't like the package, but man, I want the gift. If you have the courage to pray that and pray out loud, I think something in your discussion and maybe your life will change.